0: Hello and welcome to the Talking Techniques podcast. Brought to you by Biotechniques, this show brings you the latest from the frontiers of the life sciences, straight from the people exploring them. Hosted by me, Biotechniques digital editor Tristan Free, this episode will look into molecular-based therapeutics, their development and potential. Coming up, we will discuss previous safety concerns that have delayed the development of molecular therapeutics.
1: Jesse, he actually volunteered for emerging uh, gene therapy. So this was done utilizing adenovirus that would deliver a functional copy into the cells of the patient. But when Jesse underwent this treatment, he had a severe inflammatory reaction, uh, which resulted in ultimately death.
0: How to communicate these advancing technologies to the public, avoiding misconceptions as have occurred with COVID-19?
1: Are they going to make people resistant to antibiotic treatments? Are they going to have genetic identifiers or biomarkers inside them that can be detected by uh, security agencies, etc.?
0: And some of the most exciting therapeutic development programs currently in process. Uh,
1: they're actually modifying exosomes. They're basically genetically engineering them to recruit the patient's immune system in order to fight off the cancer.
0: Speaking with me today to provide all the details of molecular therapeutic development is Aaron Clausen, product manager at Zymer Research. Aaron, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me here as well. Um, so firstly, what can we define as molecular therapeutics? What, uh, what what therapeutics are encompassed by this term?
1: In terms of the like, most basic definition, uh, really it's anything, therapy that uses DNA as the therapeutic, or it uses DNA during the manufacturing of the therapeutic. So with that being said, right, your most common type of therapy you think about would be gene therapy, where you're basically replacing a non-functional or mutated gene with a correct one to restore a particular biochemical pathway and provide a cure for a genetically related disease. However, any other therapy that uses recombinant DNA technology. So this would be vaccines, protein replacement therapy, as well as cell therapy.
0: Uh, And so what are some of the the best known examples um, of molecular therapeutics that are available today? So... Uh, Surprisingly, so over the last decade, we've seen the adoption of, you know,
1: sort of molecular-based therapeutics uh, in a number of different disease areas. Everything from cancer, autoimmune diseases, uh, neurodegeneration, infectious diseases, et cetera. The list goes on and on. So, most notably, uh, we saw these mRNA-based vaccines come to market, right? And these are targeting uh, the spike protein uh, and the SARS-CoV-2 virus uh, to help uh, control or prevent COVID-19 infection. However, we've seen a lot of adoption of molecular therapy in terms of cancer uh, where you're looking at cell therapy, right? So this would be uh, immunotherapy or what we call CAR-T cell therapy. This is where we actually take a patient's cells, their T cells, and they are genetically modified you know, outside of the patient in order to recognize a particular cancerous cell. And then they're placed back in the patient's body where it's used to recruit sort of the immune system to fight off the tumor or cancer. Now, that being said, of course, we do have some classic gene therapies out there available to the market. The first, I think, FDA approved one, which was in 2017, this is utilizing uh, recombinant viral particles to basically cure or control an inherited retinal disease. right? And then later on in 2019, we had a similar gene therapeutic utilizing recombinant viral particles that's used to treat spinal muscular atrophy. Uh, With that being said, there's also quite a bit of different uh, protein replacement therapies out there on the market, everything from hemophilia, which utilizes recombinant uh, coagulation factors to uh, autoimmune diseases such as lupus, as well as macular degeneration. Um, the list goes on and on, but all the different molecular therapeutic categories out there have some commercial or therapeutic technique in use.
0: And, and so working with these gene-based therapies, as opposed to just target molecules um, or chemicals as your active ingredient, what, what kind of, sets that, um, those gene-based therapeutics apart from those more conventional drugs in terms of what can you achieve with them and what are the differing effects that you can um, enact?
1: So uh, that's a good question. Really, uh, what's interesting about so these molecular-based therapeutics is the capability to actually specifically target the molecular defect or disease. So we can develop A therapeutic that will go go after a specific protein or mutation that is the underlying cause of the disease. Now, because of that, uh, these molecular therapies can be seen more of a therapy uh, or a cure to the disorder as opposed to just maintaining the health of the patient through the life of the disease.
0: So, as opposed to a more standard drug, which would prevent the symptom after yes. the um, the defect, the these really go for the source of um, the source of the issue, going in and altering the the DNA. Um, exactly. And you mentioned there, sorry, the um, the recombinant viral particles. So, uh, the idea is they're being used as the delivery systems to to deliver these these drugs into into people's, people's cells, how do you target them, say with the retinal disease, how do you target those uh, viral particles to only take action in, in that one specific area?
1: Well, that's a good question. And this has a lot to do with sort of how you select or choose the appropriate uh, molecular therapy. Um, for retinal disease, uh, it's gonna be a pretty much um, a localized effect. So you're gonna want to administer it um, to the problematic cells directly. So this would be, you know, injecting them uh, into the retina of patients, right, To in, in order to ensure appropriate targeting. Now, with that being said, you know, with molecular therapeutics and targeting, et cetera, uh, this offers a high degree of personalization as well, uh, because we can, you know, tune things sort of at the molecular level, and we can utilize sort of a uh, a very custom approach to each patient's situation, right? So um, it's not a like a, a one-size-fits-all approach for the therapy, like maybe a synthesized chemical would be. So depending on the genetic makeup of the disease or the genetic background of the individual, we can tune the therapeutic at the molecular level in terms of efficacy, safety, immune response, stability, packaging, et cetera, um, in order to meet a particular patient's needs. Back to your question with regards to targeting, this would have a lot to do with what to consider when you're when selecting the most appropriate molecular therapeutic. So the duration of the treatment, right? So how long does the therapeutic need to be present within the individual? And this is going to largely be dependent on um, the type of disease or disorder, right? Uh, does the gene need to be Express forever or can it just be um briefly present um or the protein so so
0: these are the kind of questions you'd be asking at the beginning of the development path when you are selecting you've got you've got your disease of interest that you're looking to develop for these are the kind of questions that you'd you'd be thinking about when you're selecting the the type of of molecular therapeutic that you would want to be developing initially so what are some of those those types that are available um, and following through those questions, how would, how would you select which, which one was appropriate for each disease?
1: So um, it would be really uh, the type of therapeutic agent um, and how long it can be expressed within the patient, right, or present. Uh, what kind of response it needs to elicit also is related to the length of treatment, right? So if you're just trying to induce an immune response, say with a vaccine, then um, maybe like an mRNA sequence where the in vivo lifespan or how long the stability of it inside the body is not very long is sufficient. It's just enough for it to get into some cells, reprogram them, induce the expression of the protein that is required for recognizing the pathogen, right? Uh, However, if you have a hereditary disorder where either uh, treatment consists of sort of a long-term approach where you'll basically have to always have this correct or functional protein throughout the life of the treatment, then maybe actually integrating the protein into the genome uh, would be a better approach. So therefore, the patient doesn't have to continually have treatment, right? They can get a correct functional copy uh, into their genome, it expresses normally and life goes on. However, targeting is also important, right? Like I mentioned, some drugs uh, depending on how they distribute throughout the body and how stable they are, uh, whether it's like a viral vector or cells, you'll have to really think about, you know what uh, what where does it need to go? And will it get there before it breaks down, right? So, for cancer, um, if you're trying to trigger a sort of molecular response say within bone marrow or something like that, it might be really hard to get a viral vector or uh, nucleic acid into that particular part of the body. So it might be more amicable to do some sort of cell therapy where you actually have to take out some tissue from the patient, replace it with genetically modified tissue and insert that back in to get your desired therapeutic
0: effect. Interesting. Um, uh, And so- during the development of molecular therapeutics, gene therapies in particular have, have sort of had some setbacks over the, the course of their development over the last 20, 30 years, most notably probably the the case of, of Jesse Gelsinger, who was one of the first people to die in a clinical trial of, of gene therapies. Um, can you tell us a bit more about the issues observed previously in those um, and that arose to these kind of these safety concerns and issues, um, and then how have they been overcome now in the studies that we're, we're progressing with at the moment?
1: That's a very good point. So... There's actually a couple very high-profile gene therapy clinical trials that occurred uh, around uh, late 90s, uh, early 2000s. The first one you mentioned is Jesse Gelsinger. Uh, He suffered from a a hereditary or genetically linked metabolic disorder in the liver, which resulted in ammonia building up in the bloodstream uh, to toxic levels. Traditional treatment of that was just maintaining a certain diet to overcome this genetic disorder. However, uh, Jesse, he actually volunteered for emerging uh, gene therapy, where it actually target uh, the particular dysfunctional gene in the patient's genome. So this was done utilizing a uh, adenovirus. Um, so the adenovirus were these uh, recombinant viral particles that would deliver a functional copy into uh, the cells of the patient, right? Um, however, unfortunately, uh, when Jesse underwent this treatment, he had a severe inflammatory reaction, uh, which resulted in jaundice, blood clotting issues, kidney failure, lung failure, and ultimately death. And Really, this shed light on the sort of process in terms of delivery of the the therapeutic. Because uh the consensus is is that it really came down to the viral particle that was delivering this genetic information inside the cell. These were the adenovirus
0: viruses. So so what he was reacting to was, was not the, the active agent of the gene, it was it was the, the delivery vesicle that it was being interacting.
1: Right. Yeah, yeah. So correct. So um so uh, really, it was the uh, inflammatory response that the adenovirus elicited, basically, inside his body that caused these negative side effects. Although this incident was unfortunate, it actually led to the adoption of a new delivery vector known as adeno virus, which is a much safer alternative because it triggers a very weak immune response compared to the adenovirus that was used to treat Jesse. Now, with that being said, uh, there was another uh, clinical trial done around the same time, and this was looking at a cure for X-linked severe combined immunodeficiency, which is an X-linked immune disorder that really uh, weakens the immune system to the point where it's pretty much almost lethal when they're newborns. And now this one also uh, was very promising, many patients who signed up and got this cell replacement therapy. They were quite successful in that. However, several of the patients did develop leukemia down the road. What happened was the viral vector that they used here was a retrovirus. Here, the gene was actually inserted into the cellular DNA, as opposed to Jesse, where the adenovirus just produced the gene um, inside the cell but did, never, did not actually integrate into the genome, right? Whereas here, um, it integrated into the genome, but uh, this retroviral vector that they used, uh, when it integrated into the genome, it was fairly close to uh, tumor-promoting genes, right? And the promoter um, that was used to express the transgene also caused transcriptional activation of these tumor-promoting genes as well. And that led to uh, the development of leukemia in some of these patients. And so this actually also uh, resulted in the development of basically a safer uh, vector delivery system where Through mutations and genetic engineering, they're able to revise the promoter or gene expression systems, as well as remove virulent genes from the virus to make them even less pathogenic, as well as reducing the chances of any aberrant or unwanted gene expression from genes surrounding the transgene insertion.
0: So is it a case of altering the the delivery so that if the target is to integrate the uh, gene sequence into the G- the cell's genome. Is it trying to target it so that it doesn't integrate next to genes like like tumor um, promoter genes, or is it altering that promoter on the um, that's that's delivered with your your target gene for expression to make sure that it only promotes that that expression?
1: So that's a good question. Um, there's actually you know both of these you know, features or ways of going about it have been looked into. For this particular case, they actually redesigned the promoter of the transgene in order to ensure that it doesn't uh, transcribe or express genes around it. And actually, after they redesigned this retroviral vector and continued on or went further with these clinical trials, they are actually able to completely uh, resolve the issue. So later trials, there was none of these incidences of leukemia developing in the patients. But now with more advanced genetic engineering techniques, uh, there is also the idea that in trying to integrate the transgene into areas that would be uh, more inconsequential in terms of potentially negative effects. But as we learn more about the genome, um, we definitely will be able to become uh, more precise and have a better understanding of where we actually need to put these genes in. So we're not potentially just relying on uh, modifications to the promoter, but also uh, the insertion site as well.
0: So obviously that Increasing that specificity um, and refining those promoters is is a key focus. But what are some of the other challenges in the development of, um, of molecular therapeutics?
1: Of course, there is a lot of challenges to the development when you are building a therapeutic out. Some of them we've already talked about, of course, drug delivery or targeting. How do you get the therapeutic where it needs to be inside the body, right? Uh, genomic integration, which we just mentioned, safety, of course, um, you know, minimizing any side effects or toxic issues related to the patient. Also, how we regulate gene expression of the transgene, evading the immune response. However, in terms of the actual development, you're going to want to, at the most basic level, right, identify uh, the key genes or proteins um, and mutations involved in the disease or the disease, right? Um, these, uh, then you would make necessary you know, alterations or modifications of the genetic information in vitro to, to obtain you know, your desired therapeutic characteristics that could potentially overcome um, all of these uh, sort of issues that, or challenges that are uh, present in a molecular therapeutic because I mentioned earlier, really drug delivery, targeting, genomic integration, et cetera, this can all be potentially optimized or, or modified at the molecular level.
0: And so once you've identified the sequence that you want to create to generate a therapeutic effect and you fine-tuned it at the molecular level, as you say, um, how would you ensure that it is functional and move towards delivering your sequence to a target site?
1: So once you have sort of your desired sequence. You know, it, it basically targets the uh, disease or the proteins that are involved in the disease itself. You would then take that sequence in order to evaluate and test it, you know, pre-clinically. You'd want to then um, integrate that into something called uh, plasmid, right? So this plasmid DNA, is actually become a very uh, critical element in the development of molecular therapeutics uh, because it has it's very capable of transferring and storing genetic information, right? Um, you can easily manipulate the DNA when it's inside this plasmid. Um, also, you can propagate or mark, make more of it uh, quite inexpensively uh, and simply. And also, these plasmids have a natural capacity to be taken up uh, by a variety of different cells, right? So because of that, Um, generally they'll take you their desired genetic sequence, um, insert this into a plasma DNA, right? And then they'll take this recombinant plasmid and propagate it inside uh, these microbes called E. coli, right? In order to generate sufficient amounts for their downstream applications, okay? Now, with that being said, you then recover or purify this uh, recombinant plasmid, and then it can be modified further at the molecular level. Or you can use it directly as a therapeutic or uh, take that and use it to produce your actual um, therapeutic molecule. If it's going to be say like RNA, you'll need to use that for in vitro production uh, via transcription um, or generate recombinant viral particles. Uh, therefore, the plasmid would be uh, transfected into mammalian cell lines or you would use it to produce your recombinant protein that you'll use for the therapeutic. And this could be done either in mammalian cells via transfection or other microbes via transformation. Uh, Because plasmid plays such a critical role in the development of the therapeutic, it's uh, very important that the production or purification of that plasmid DNA meets necessary requirements for downstream applications this includes you know the actual in vitro in vivo injection if it's going to be used for therapy uh transfection as well as uh in vitro transcription and there are many different points in terms of the plasma that ensures it will be suitable this includes of course, plasmid DNA yield, as well as the concentration of the plasmid. If the plasmid is too dilute, it could potentially dilute other critical reagents required for the process. Also, the quality, so contaminants carried over from the purification process, uh, such as salts, as well as contaminants from the host uh, you know, here E. coli uh, that were used to amplify or propagate the plasmid. One of these contaminants, in particular, uh, that is uh, of uh, much interest, is actually endotoxins. These endotoxins—they're uh, large molecules that are found in the outer membrane of E. coli. The problem is, if there's too much endotoxin present, they will actually induce a severe immune response, which could result in fever, shock organ failure eventually even death
0: i'm so uh, sorry addition- d- these would yeah. these would carry through into your um sort of drug solution um when you're eluting yes. the um the plasmid from from the e coli once you've designed it and put it into the e coli to grow it all and then extracted it you yes, can exactly. also end up carrying through yeah. these endotoxins okay
1: in addition not only affecting maybe the health of whoever you're administering this Therapeutic too, even if the plasmid is used as a precursor, the endotoxin itself um, can be quite deleterious because a lot of people now are using mammalian cell systems for recombinant protein expression. But these endotoxins, depending on the types of cells, can uh, be affect their health negatively. Now, do not get alarmed because there are rigorous molecular and biochemical tests performed on the plasmid DNA or the resulting products to ensure the therapeutics are free of endotoxins and other harmful contaminants prior to administering.
0: So how do you avoid these um, things like endotoxins and other contaminants coming through when you're, when you're trying to develop molecular therapeutics? What, what are some of the solutions available to, to stop this happening?
1: Over the decades since molecular therapeutics have become more uh, to the forefront and a potential option, For therapy, there's been uh, quite a bit of interest in developing workflows uh, for purifying plasma that will meet the needs of these downstream applications, right? And the first sort of platform that came out was uh, cesium chloride, right? So this was a sort of more um, homebrew, build yourself plasma purification system, but it relied on Density gradient purification, um, and this would allow the capability to sort of separate out the endotoxins from the plasmid DNA. However, this is a very tedious and long procedure, and you're looking at a method that takes several days, and it requires you know extensive training and lots of tedious handling. So it can result in inconsistent yields as well as quality, uh, which definitely can be a bottleneck when you're trying to design or develop a molecular therapeutic yeah, and that's Later- what's
0: quite a, a key step obviously is, is doing that that isolating and, and checking of the um the plasmids because i assume you're you're doing that on multiple occasions to make sure that you're developing them correctly and that they're serving a purpose and then going off and assaying them against different things as well so yes um, that's correct over um, and over again having to do a, a step that takes several days and has yeah. many many steps also i guess the, the more steps you have involved then there's the the, the more chance of human error Um, Yes, this is correct. Yeah. Yeah. So later on, um, they came out with some
1: sort of commercial solutions. These are plasma purification systems based on anion exchange. And this generally gives pretty good quality plasma DNA. And then uh, the integration of other uh, modifications to the workflow has dramatically dropped endotoxin levels as well in terms of the eluted plasma for these anion exchange-based plasma purification workflows. Um, it dramatically reduced the processing time. It went from about two days to maybe about two hours, right? So this was uh, definitely a step in the right direction. However, um, the technology it uses, it relies on these slow gravity flow columns. So they're pretty slow. And also your resulting plasma DNA or LU that comes off these columns, it still has some contaminants left over from the animal exchange purification itself. And also it's too dilute to use in a lot of these sensitive applications. So the plasma DNA needs to be concentrated and cleaned up further, which requires uh, alcohol precipitation steps. And so this actually adds a lot to the processing time. Uh, you get your eluted plasmid, and then you have to uh, basically concentrate it and clean up further by doing several rounds of alcohol precipitation uh, and centrifugation uh, in order to get your final product. Now, with that being said, because of these alcohol precipitation steps, um, it also gets very tedious. There's also greater chance for human air. So Although it is faster than cesium chloride, uh, it's not the uh, still not the most optimal situation or workflow when you're trying to screen a number of different uh, potential therapeutic agents in order to identify one that has all the
0: characteristics you are interested in, right? Okay, so it's not, the, it's not the final step then no, in no, terms no. of the optimal way to do this. Um, what, what fields do you think molecular therapeutics are going to impact the most as we look forward to the future? And which areas do you find most exciting?
1: It's a very exciting time for molecular therapeutics. The recent COVID-19 pandemic has really accelerated the availability of molecular therapeutics to the general public. And I'm especially excited about gene therapy because of the recent advances in gene editing, such as CRISPR-Cas9, and genomics because of next-generation sequencing and the integration of very powerful bioinformatics tools. I feel that a greater understanding of the human genome and more precise gene editing will allow us to tune gene therapies in ways that were previously unthinkable. Important aspects such as targeting, genomic integration, evasion of the immune system, and side effects will hopefully be more precisely controlled which will allow us to provide potential cures for previously uncurable disorders, such as Alzheimer's disease and various cancers and developmental disorders.
0: So you, you've mentioned, obviously, COVID nineteen and the and the impact that's had on on the acceleration of the, this development, particularly with the the RNA vaccines. There's there's a lot, a lot a lot of noise uh, out there about um, you know people with reservations about them, um, and and a lot of it is kind of people who have, seem seems that they, they find a middle ground of the science and then take it somewhere else. So it's the concern about, okay, well, it integrates into your cells. What if it integrates into the wrong cells and then causes the wrong expression? And that that tends to be the, the scientific basis, which then a lot of less scientific um, stuff gets spun out from. Um, what would you say to people um, who have these concerns? Um, and how do you think we can communicate better how these things work Um, and how they they don't um specifically how they don't work um and how people some some people try and say that they do um so that we can avoid this kind of um resistance and and slight concern and and fear of, of of what these therapeutics are and what they can do
1: yeah you bring up a
0: good point um you know a lot of it
1: uh will have to be um through you know uh education, right? Um, that's really the only way to go about it. Uh, of course, as molecular therapeutics become more widely used and adopted, uh, the comfort level of the general population will probably become more at ease, right? Uh, a lot of this was also seen with earlier therapeutic advancements, such as vaccines, right? Um, you know, Your traditional type of vaccine. But now we have this layer of, you know, sort of the idea that you're Uh, manipulating uh, an individual's uh, genome, right, at the molecular level, um, and what are the consequences of that? Are the other genes inside this viral vector or plasmid also going to be expressed? Um, Are they going to make people resistant to antibiotic treatments? Are they going to have genetic identifiers or biomarkers inside them <laughs> that can be detected by uh security agencies etc um uh, uh can it uh affect other downstream or other uh metabolic or biochemical pathways inside the patient um you know the list goes on and on in terms of uh people's ideas and fears that uh that sort of are associated with molecular-based therapeutics, right? Um, However, you know, it it will take some time, but in order to get people really comfortable with it, you're going to have to really show or educate them in how they actually function and work, right? And of course, a, a lot of success stories and proven track record can help in terms of the success and development of these therapeutics, but you're gonna to have to sh- really clearly show people how they work in order to produce a desired therapeutic effect and h- how we ensure the safety of them as yeah. well. Yeah,
0: what, what, right? what the safety checks are in, in yeah. those vaccines and in those, yeah. In those therapeutics. Yeah. Um, and, and if you could ask for, um, for one thing, Um, it could be literally anything that you could pluck out of thin air. Um, what would it be to help you in the development of more successful molecular therapeutics? Like I said before, because there's
1: historically been no real rapid or quick way of isolating Plasma DNA that's of sufficient quality and quantity for these applications that are used during the development—it's um, really slowing down or hindering the therapeutic development process. So, uh, really, it would be, you know, a plasma purification kit that you could put into a workflow that would allow the ability to uh, screen promising therapeutic molecular variants. Uh, faster, and therefore getting to a molecular therapeutic on the market much sooner. And with that being said, Zymapro over the last several years has really looked into this bottleneck, right, or this problem, and trying to come up with a solution uh, that could provide researchers with a really fast way of getting their plasmid preps, Um, in order to screen them sooner and get to their conclusions much faster, right? And a lot of this research and development actually culminated in the release of our Zymopure Plasma Purification product line. These products utilize a novel spin column binding system that allows for endotoxin-free plasma DNA to be purified in less than 20 minutes for large-scale preps, as opposed to several hours with older technologies. The unique binding system also enables us to bind a lot of plasma DNA to a very small spin column, which results in the recovery of very concentrated plasma DNA that is more than suitable for sensitive applications such as transfections. Therefore, no tedious precipitation steps need to be performed after the elution step. You just simply elute your plasma DNA and move on to your experiments. With this uh, sort of tool that you can incorporate into your therapeutic development workflow, you can actually screen and evaluate promising DNA sequences much faster and therefore get to your therapeutic a lot sooner. This has been quite a big success story in terms of of optimizing the therapeutic development workflow. Uh, We have a number of customers who have already adopted this. This includes uh, people who are studying breast cancer, and developing uh, sort of a new immunotherapy approaches to uh, curing the disease. So as opposed to modifying um, T-cells genetically uh, to produce an immunoresponse against the cancer, uh, they're actually modifying exosomes. They're basically genetically engineering them to recruit the patient's immune system in order to fight off the cancer. Uh, Also advances in car t uh, like we mentioned before, especially how it relates to ovarian cancer. And then uh, we have examples in regenerative medicine using sort of high throughput CRISPR editing in order to produce mesenchymal stem cells that have the uh, sort of beneficial characteristics for a particular developmental disorder. Uh, Some other examples include, of course, SARS-CoV-2. We have customers using this for developing recombinant antibodies to attack uh, a number of different infectious diseases, including um, COVID, right? Uh, As well as diabetes, which um, entails reprogramming the patient's cells in order to produce insulin. So they're not reliant on administering an outside source of insulin. So either chemically or biologically manufactured. Here, uh, once we reprogram the patient's cells, um, they'll actually be able to produce the insulin themselves and therefore not be so dependent on uh, monitoring their blood glucose levels or taking shots of insulin or utilizing some pump system.
0: And and is that targeting the, the islet cells or is it?
1: No. So here, what's interesting is that the researchers are actually reprogramming hepatocyte cells of the liver, which unlike islet cells do not naturally produce insulin in the body this way the therapy can overcome the immune system destroying the insulin producing islet cells in the pancreas which is the underlying cause of type 1 diabetes
0: that's absolutely fascinating to hear all the different applications of it and and how it can be both being used in, in as a vaccine it can then also be used as an active agent in things like diabetes which we just discussed um, but then also in cancer and i think as well that difference to patients' lives when you go from having to monitor your blood glucose, constantly doing insulin injections as well, to being able to just produce it naturally as if there was there was no issue there. It it's really a, a fascinating insight into the the real potential of of these type of therapeutics. Aaron, it's been absolutely fantastic to talk to you. Oh, thank you. I hope it went well. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's excellent. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Talking Techniques. If you were interested by the details of molecular therapeutic development, you may want to check out our in focus on the topic, sponsored by Zymer Research, over on www.biotechniques.com. You can catch more episodes in the podcast section of our website or follow me on Twitter at Cy Tristan for the latest updates. Thanks for listening and goodbye.